Two and a Half Admins, episode 37. I'm Joe. I'm Jim. And I'm Alan. And here we are again. And Alan, I can't believe you've put this into plug, why you should consider the BSD license. Yes. Well, it's it's talks about the advantages and, and many, many disadvantages of the GPL, uh, but why <laughs> more projects tend to go with, uh, you know, BSD, MIT, or ISC-type licenses, or even the Apache license. I'm just picturing the GIF of the orange one just going, wrong, and that's in Jim's head right now. Yeah. <laughs> uh, also, with the recent change of MinIO going to the uh, from the Apache 2 license to the AGPL, it raises some interesting questions. Uh, I didn't realize there was quite as much hate for the AGPL as uh, there is, and that companies like Google have a just absolutely no AGPL in the door policy. Yeah, they've got a whole page telling you why you're not allowed to do it in any of their code. Yes, because the GPL is very viral and... Once it gets in there, it'll it'll infect everything. <laughs> infect it with freedom, Alan. Ah, freedom. <laughs> anyway, let's get on with it. We've got some feedback first. So the first one is from Nacho. He says, I work for a media and advertising company based in the UK, but I work from the Los Angeles office as an IT support engineer. And since Google has been our client since the company's inception, we are heavily invested in Google G Suite, uh, Google Workspace, We used to use Backupify as our main cloud backup solution where newly hired employees were added from the get-go to Backupify, their files synced on a schedule, and we could sift through multiple versions of the files. Needless to say, we finally decided to drop them due to multiple issues like website downtime, horrible searching, and slow performance. We're now using Druva and have the same layout where new hires are backed up from the get-go and leavers have their files backed up, transferred to existing users, and then archived. We've only just begun with Druva, but just the search features alone make it much better. Ultimately, should ransomware hit our Google Drive instance on the client side, we should be okay with our cloud backups, but I can only imagine how slow it would be to recover terabytes full of data. P.S. I am not privy to the financials, but could imagine it's pretty pricey for these solutions. So this was in response to us talking about backing up Google Drive stuff. Um, Alex said... I'm surprised no one mentioned rclone at rclone.org. It's been a mainstay of my cloud document access. In fact, the fact that it wasn't mentioned by you guys makes me wonder if there's something grievously wrong with it. But it is still being actively maintained, supports a huge variety of cloud services, from Box to G Drive to S3, and perhaps most importantly, doesn't try to do automatic syncing. You can run rsync, but you need to specify a direction, and you can always do a dry run to see if anything will get wiped. So yeah, why didn't we mention rclone? Well, uh, because this use case is different, right? rclone is for backing things up to the cloud, and these guys were trying to back up their cloud. They want to back up what's in Google Drive, not back up their desktop to Google Drive. But Alex wasn't the only person who mentioned it. Loads of people mentioned rclone. Okay, it might work that way too. Separately, if anybody has knows a good tool for backing up SharePoint on Office 365, uh, <laughs> I, I would like to know what that is. We didn't mention Arclone before, probably just because it, it's yet another rsync-based backup tool. Um, you know, it's it's a wrapper like rsnapshot or, uh, you know, one that I wrote but was never bright enough to release under a, you know, public license and therefore nobody else ever heard of it. And once you know one, you you don't generally tend to need a different one. Our snapshot is the one that I've implemented, so it's the one I'm the most familiar with and it's the one I talk about. I was aware that our clone existed, but that's about all I can really tell you about it. 
All right. Well, Joe, not me, also mentioned Arclone and said that there's plenty of proprietary software that can do it. And Asigra, he believes, supports it. I think that's how you say that. Uh, Michael also mentioned Arclone, but he went on to say, I never hear any podcast mention Mikrotik as an alternative to Ubiquity, etc. We have them at work and at home, amazing devices. I can have four different DHCP servers on four different ports, all sharing a net connection from a fifth port, maybe set a failover to a sixth port for LTE, IoT devices and stuff. So, yeah, why have I never heard of this? I don't know. I have a couple of friends that are very enamored with the the Mikrotik routers and so on. They tend to be pretty cheap. I looked at, they make a, like a four port, 10 gigabit switch for less than $100 or something that I'd have been interested in before for, especially for the case where people have, you know, a file server and uh, a video editing workstation or something and want to network them together, but don't want to, you know, buy a 16 port, 10 gigabit switch for thousands of dollars. I've just never used them myself because my router is a FreeBSD machine on a one new box I bought 10 years ago and worked perfectly fine. But no, I don't have anything particularly against Mikrotik. The only thing I have against it is that uh, it's very, very easy to brick it <laughs> if you start playing with things. Make sure you get a paperclip handy if you're going to get experimental in the interface. Because, I mean, you, you can do on these little teeny tiny, like, you know, $50 routers that, you know, look like a joke that you would throw at your friend across the room. They're so, you know, small and flimsy. You can set up BGP on those things if you want to. Like, it's all there in the firmware. What is very, very much missing from the Mikrotik firmware are like, you know, any kind of safety checks that, you know, it's like, hey, boss, uh, you're going to break this whole device. There's going to be no way to go except, you know, paperclip reset it. You sure you want to do that? No, it just says, okay. It's a bit, you know, the Unix philosophy, right? I, I'm not going to stop you doing something stupid because that would also stop you doing something clever. But uh, if you don't know what you're doing, you might want <laughs> you might want something with more guardrails. I don't want to get too crazy with this. Um, I had no difficulty using the Mikrotik web interface to set up, you know, a typical home network quickly and easily when I was testing one several years ago and had, you know, never encountered it before. If that's all you really want to do is like, you know, get a LAN on a NAT, you know, behind a WAN, that's not difficult. But if you start going, oh, look at the shiny features. Yeah, you got to have that paperclip handy because you will break that thing in a heartbeat. Okay, D said, on episode 35, another listener asked about resources to learn about Linux server security. I thoroughly enjoyed reading Linux Hardening in Hostile Networks, Server Security from TLS to Tor by Carl Rankin. The book is not a panacea, but it is a great overview of core Linux application hardening and security for those interested in the subject. Also, I wanted to mention that I really enjoyed hearing about config management on the show, Chef, Puppet, Ansible, etc., it's definitely a subject that took a while to get my head around and something I've found truly vital throughout my career. It sounded like Alan had some experience with Puppet. Curious what other config management tools y'all use and what your general approach to the matter is. Yeah, so I started using Puppet in the 0.4 or something like that. I forget, it was so long ago. 0.28 maybe? A uh, very long time ago. And there was some pain as we upgrade. Every time we changed the major version of Puppet, after four, it got better. Uh, but before that, like every time they changed a major version, they would like yank the rug on a bunch of features. They're like, oh, now there's only one config file and it gets all smushed together based on the uh, an alphabetical sorting of the files in the directory instead of being able to have included files or something and a bunch of stuff like that, but not really something that applies now. Each of the different tools 
kind of works in a different way. So Puppet is generally meant it runs on each of the nodes. It calls back to the Puppet Master and says, hey, what should my machine look like? It gets that manifest of what the machine looked like, and it will compare the machine to that manifest, find anything that's different than it should be, and fix it. And it'll do that by default every half hour. Whereas Ansible is more, here's a playbook. I'm going to go and apply these actions, and once they're done, I'm not going to do it again, or I'm not going to check in half an hour to make sure it didn't get undone and then re-undo it and, and so on. Uh, so they're all a bit different. Based on what I've learned since, I probably if I was starting now, I'd probably use Salt rather than Puppet. But at the same time, I've built up enough knowledge of Puppet to be able to do what I need to do more quickly than I could in something I'd have to learn first. And inertia uh, is a thing. Um, the other config stuff I've seen before that we use inside the FreeBSD cluster itself, because I'm on the sysadmin team for that as well, is we just have a git repo of config files, and a lot of the servers will just update their copy of the repo every 10 minutes, copy the configs to the right places, and run you know Nginx reload or whatever to pick up the changes if, if the file changes. And that works there in much more pull fashion than you get with something like Ansible, where normally with Ansible, you reach out to a machine and say, hey, here's a new playbook, run it. Whereas sometimes you want the pull method where each machine calls home and says, hey, is there something for me to do? But it really depends on what you're doing and what types of things you're trying to automate, which of the tools of Chef, Puppet, Ansible, Salt, or something homegrown makes the most sense. I'd probably recommend against doing anything homegrown because there's enough tools out there now that there's one that's the flavor that you want. I got to admit, you know, homegrown is about all I ever really do because I just... I manage a lot of machines, but there aren't enough of them in any one group that really falls under the same umbrella. I don't want something as pervasive as a config management system tying them all together when they're, you know, very disparate networks belonging to different organizations with different policies that need things set up differently. It just, it it kind of, uh, kind of undoes the value of the config management to begin with. If there's something, that I'm doing on a lot of machines, I'll generally just build a shell script to accomplish that thing. And, uh, you know, just SSH it in, run things from there. The other thing is definitely like, not until you have config management or and with automation, can you break every one of your servers at once? <laughs> yep, exactly. And Puppet, we, we have separate environments. So we have a dev environment that, you know, like five or 10% of our servers use. And then stuff lives there for a little while. It takes a little bit of traffic before it ends up in production to try to avoid those. But yeah, it's uh, a little too easy to <laughs> to break things when you have too much automation and you need good procedures around that. And again, no matter what it is, you probably want to keep, whether it's scripts you made by yourself uh, or the configs for Puppet or Ansible or whatever in source control, whether that's Git or SVN or whatever, just having versions so that it's easy to go back to a version or to see what change, when, and for multiple people to collaborate on it. It just works better that way. Okay, this episode is sponsored by CBT Nuggets, training for IT professionals or anyone looking to build IT skills. Go to cbtnuggets.com slash 25admins and sign up for a seven-day free trial. The on-demand virtual labs mean you can build practical experience with the commands, config, scripts, and everything you need to get the most out of each course. Another standout feature is the accountability coaching service, available to all learners with a subscription, which gives you access to a real person who will help you craft a personalized learning plan and set goals, and will check in with you to keep you accountable. 
So start your free seven-day trial today at cbtnuggets.com slash 25admins. It includes unlimited access to all course materials, including virtual labs. That's cbtnuggets.com slash 25admins. Something that I've been keeping an eye on over the last month or so was the exchange vulnerabilities and what happened after that. It seems that a bunch of people took advantage of unpatched servers and uploaded shells to them. And then the FBI decided it would be a good idea to remove those shells from the boxes. And so they sought court orders and everything, got that all legally done and removed them. And now over the last couple of weeks, I read a story saying that the British authorities are considering doing the same thing. And I wanted to ask you two your opinion on this, because I can't see this happening to you two, because you two would patch your shit. But where do you stand on the authorities coming in and reaching into servers that don't belong to them without first telling you about it and ultimately doing a good thing, but kind of stepping over boundaries that some people might say they shouldn't be? If you ask the question of, hey, I'm a security researcher, I found this vulnerability and notice other people are exploiting it, I'm now going to use that vulnerability to patch all the machines that had the vulnerability. Uh, so that other people can't exploit it. If suddenly that researcher is the FBI instead of just some guy, does that change your opinion about whether they should have been allowed to do it or not? Well, the FBI didn't actually do that in this case. The FBI only removed the shells but left it vulnerable. Well, then the shells just going to get installed again. That was <laughs> pointless. Well, indeed, yes. The bigger concern here is in their attempt to patch the vulnerability or fix something, if they broke something or just caused downtime enough to cost the company money, are they liable for that because they decided to take this action to attempt to fix it? Like you can imagine installing even just the Windows update causing somebody's server to reboot or go down or not come back up properly or something. And suddenly the FBI denial of service to my whole company by trying to fix <laughs> our old install of Windows Server 2003 or whatever. Yeah, or even on a Linux server, just restarting services. If they don't come back properly, then you could be in a world of shit, basically. But they didn't do that. That's why all they did was remove the malicious shells, because they didn't want to leave themselves liable for that. That can go wrong, too. We just got done talking about how, you know, uh, configuration management makes it possible for you to break all your servers at once. Well, running what amounts to a worm against all these, uh, you know, unpatched Windows servers at once, that's a sort of config management. And you can absolutely screw up a ton's of people's servers. You know, you've you've written what amounts to a pretty simple script, you know, to get rid of, uh, you know, the process and any files that it uses to launch itself, you know, yada, yada, yada. And everything seems fine on the first server that you ran against and, you know, maybe the first 10, but there's very likely going to be one in a thousand that, you know, some condition that you didn't think about and that server most likely looked like a house of cards to begin with. It was a miracle that it was running at all, right? But still, you messed with something, and now it doesn't work anymore, and it doesn't work anymore because you did it. On the other hand, there's an argument to be made here that, you know, yeah, when the fire company came and, uh, you know, put out the raging fire in your home, they did water damage, but uh, your house was on fire, man. Yeah. <laughs> and it was getting ready to spread to other houses, which is... Not a terrible analogy, you know, exactly. for when these people get shells on an exchange server. Like, it's not only a problem for you and your company anymore. It's a problem for a lot of people. 
Yeah, especially if they use that shell to start participating in a botnet or, or DDoS against legitimate other stuff and so on. I think I would have more of a problem with it if the way that it worked was that the cops got a warrant to come physically on premises and monkey around with your servers. Yeah. Because, you know, when it comes down to it, like, there's kind of the argument, given the specifics of what we're talking about, that if they can get in through that port, well, then, you know, that's kind of on you, right? Like, you've let that happen. Whereas, you know, if they can just come in the door and, you know, bypass anything and do literally whatever they want, that actually gets a little more scary. Yeah. Like, I don't know if the better answer is that the FBI goes through and gets your internet disconnected until you patch the vulnerability. Yes. In order to force you to do something about it, but in a way that less likely to... Well, it's more likely to disrupt your business, but less likely to have unintended fallout. No, that's absolutely the right way to do it. Yeah. But then, you know, if, if you figure all of these are servers hosted at, you know, a VPS provider or something, it's much stickier because, uh, you know, the VPS provider isn't in the same country as the FBI or the Brits. And, you know, should the Canadian government be able to get Jim's server turned off? <laughs> and at what point, where, where do we draw the line of which countries governments are allowed to get your VPS turned off and which ones aren't? And where do you draw the line on what is malware and what's exploitation and what needs to be patched and what doesn't? I mean, sometimes it's obvious, most of the time it's obvious, but there might occasionally be a case where it's, you know, a judgment call. Well, and especially the problem gets to be, well, it's obvious to us because we're technical. You know, when they're explaining it to a judge and the judge doesn't know, and then you get the situation where the People explain it to the judge. Do they actually know? Or are they just, you know, stretching the truth a bit in order to get what they want? But in this case, Joe, I think there's a simpler answer to that because we're not really saying how do we define what or is not malware, you know, on some philosophical level. We're talking about something that was causing problems for other people coming from somebody's computer that that person didn't put on that computer. It's definitely malware. Yeah. If there's something on your computer that you didn't put there and it's screwing with other people, that is absolutely going to be malware. Yeah. I guess the question is, where do we draw the line on them being able to exploit the vulnerability to turn your machine off until you fix it? At that point, are they worse hackers than the people that put malware on your machine? Because your machine still somewhat worked when it only had malware. Yeah, your emails were still getting delivered. They might have had a few suspicious attachments or something, but at least they were getting there. Or somebody else was reading them, but... There is precedent for that. You know, the whole cure being worse than disease thing. If you remember the blaster worm, uh, there was a, a counterpart to blaster called Nachi that somebody else wrote to exploit the same vulnerability that blaster did. And if it got in ahead of blaster, it would close off the vulnerability behind itself. So blaster would be prevented from spreading. But there was a problem. The kid who wrote Nachi forgot to do any kind of rate limiting at all on it before he released it out into the wild. And so Nachi was actually more destructive than blaster because it would attempt to port scan 65,000 machines as rapidly as it could all at once. And, uh, on the, the routers and switches at the time, halftime at DDOS, the switch, you know, much less your router. Mm -hmm. It's like your whole office network is down when any one machine has Nachi. So it was, it was worse. <laughs> yes, or if you remember back to Code Red, right? It was this virus for the, uh, I think, Windows 2003 web server or whatever. And the idea with the virus was at a certain date, it would reboot the machines and erase the virus. So that after, you know, after two weeks of running around making a big stink, it would just go away. But they forgot to consider time zones or the fact that some people's server clocks are wrong. And so... All the servers on the East Coast that were infected rebooted and were uninfected. But then all the servers from the 
you know, the next time zone ahead that was still infected would spread back to it. And then eventually, you know, every set of machines rebooted without the virus and then got reinfected again by machines that <laughs> had already rebooted. And now none of them were going to remove themselves anymore. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Linode. Go to linode.com slash two and a half to get started with $100 free credit and 60 days to use it. Linode offers cloud computing solutions in data centers all over the world. Whether it's scalable VMs with the choice of major distros or one-click apps and stacks, dedicated CPU and high RAM instances, block and object storage, or cloud firewalls and DDoS protection, Linode has everything you need for your personal projects right up to managed enterprise infrastructure. I recently moved my website over to Linode and it was really straightforward. And when I needed a mumble server for our late night Linux community meetups, spinning up a new VM for that was an absolute breeze. Everything's been running flawlessly since I set it up and I love the peace of mind I get from the automatic backups. So go to linode.com slash two and a half, get your $100 credit and check out Linode's great cloud hosting services and first class always available support. That's linode.com slash two and a half. All right, let's do some free consulting then. You can send your questions for Jim and Alan into show at 2.5admins.com. And thank you everyone who supports us with PayPal and Patreon. We really appreciate that. If you want to find out how to support us, go to 2.5admins.com slash support. And remember, for $5 or more per month on Patreon, you can get an advert-free RSS feed. So, Adrian writes, I am an enthusiast who is considering making a career shift to becoming a sysadmin, preferably Linux. I am currently a metallurgical engineer, so I have no formal training in IT, but I am a very quick learner and I've been running my own home server for years. How would you suggest I get in the door in the least amount of time? Certificates, degree, something else? I'm located in Vancouver, Canada, if that makes any difference. I didn't really have much in the way of formal IT training. Like I eventually went to a community college. Well, not eventually. I went to a community college to keep my parents happy to say <laughs> that I actually went to college. But I didn't learn much there other than I made some contacts and friends and so on. I don't know. In general, I found that that people that are enthusiasts and have a home server and manage it are generally better sysadmins than people that went to school for it. Because sysadmin is a very practical thing, right? You're, you're, it's based on your experience, and you don't really get the experience from going to school. You get it from running a server. Uh, so I think you're in a pretty good state, although I don't know how to get over the initial hurdle of, of not having the types of experience that really resonate on a resume. I wouldn't spend too much time on certificates. No. Maybe a couple, but especially don't go for anything expensive. Like if you can get a, there's a couple that you can go to a testing center. Well, in non-COVID times, you could go to a testing center and write for 60 bucks or something, I suppose, but the, you know, they're generally not that meaningful. And, you know, a degree probably doesn't make sense. You know, in IT, it's not quite that kind of profession. Like, Stuff that teaches sysadmin is probably you're going to find it more like a trade school that also teaches like metallurgical engineering. Well, not even that, more like the practical side of it, like pipe fitting and mechanic, like being a car mechanic and that kind of stuff. So I'd expect to find the better sysadmin courses at a trade school rather than a, a university. Isn't it more about your resume than your qualifications necessarily? Yes. A little bit. It's mostly about getting your experience and your qualifications into a form that make sense on a conventional resume. Because if you have stuff that's too not what people expect, they mostly ignore it. Although you can find places that that know what they're looking for, which is the people who are actually enthusiasts because they tend to try harder and keep up. 
somebody that just went to school for it knows what they went to school for and can regurgitate that, but often don't have the same drive. And so don't keep up with what's happening after what they learned. Right. They, they're like, I learned, you know, Red Hat nine as in before they started the versions at one again. And so I could admit up to Red Hat six, but after Red Hat seven, I was like, what the fuck is all this shit? <laughs> How do you set the IP address? They move the files around. To be fair, it is pretty annoying when they move the files around, man. Yeah. System D <laughs> going from CentOS six to seven is just like, what the hell did you do? Just this stuff has been the same for 15 years and now it's all completely different. But if config command not found, (laughs) (laughs) but I I think we've gotten a bit off of Adrian's point here, which, uh, you know, his real question was how, how does he get his foot in the door in the least amount of time? He didn't really ask about how to learn to do things. So the generic answer there is a two year degree. Um, I would definitely start out with an associate's before I tried for a full bachelor's if I was going that route. Well, specifically, he he mentioned Canada, so he probably wants a college, not a university, because we yeah. classify them differently here. Uh, so yeah, you get a two-year diploma uh, from basically a trade school, uh, and it'll be the easiest way, and it'll be a lot more practical. Like when I did it, a network engineering and security anal- uh, analyst at Mohawk College here in Hamilton, it was... Of the 24 hours a week of class, like 18 of it was in a computer lab on a computer doing stuff. Uh, and then there was like some math and some English and like a, an entrepreneurship class and so on. But a lot more of it was literally you're on a computer learning to admin Windows, Linux and BSD uh, and, and Novell because of how long ago I went to school. But even more importantly, you're getting your union card. Yeah, you can get your um, engineering one to get letters after your name even if you do the extra steps after. That's the generic advice. What may be the better advice is to find out if there is some place in your area that is basically a sysadmin mill. Like down here in the States, in a lot of locations, there's a uh, computer sciences corporation facility. And if you live near one of those, I mean, they will frequently be hiring, you know, 100 sysadmins a year. And they're willing to hire very junior. And so a lot of people get their start there. And, you know, then once you've got that first like real job at the big company that, you know, the name is like, oh, yeah, I've heard of that. Then your career path, you know, gets greased. So if you've got a place like that near you, probably the first thing that you want to do is call them up and ask them, what do you look for in a resume? And if they're like, ah, you know, we don't really care. I mean, just come in and interview. It's fine. Well, then there's an answer. Or, you know, they may say, well, you know, we want to see somebody at least have like an A plus and you can consider doing that because it's, you know, quick and relatively cheap rather than getting a degree. But the point is, the biggest thing that you need is that first job that's actually paying you. So if there's a place that's very likely to be that in your area, ask them what they want. Yeah. Like uh, when I was when I was in school, the one was there's a place I think it was called Dependable IT or something. And they had a contract to do desktop support for some American ISP where like you got the computer with your internet subscription. And so it was basically uninstalling malware from people's computers while they're still trying to watch porn on it. Nice. <laughs> like they won't stop with the porn long enough for you to uninstall the malware from last time or whatever. <laughs> but it got you real help desk experience in the trenches. Well, that's what I was going to say. Help desk, right? Like starting at the bottom. Surely that's the way in. Uh, well, it depends. Like if you want to be a Linux sysadmin, then doing Windows help desk is probably 
A, going to grate on your soul, <laughs> and B, not give you much useful experience. Yeah. You say a uh, metallurgical engineer. If you already have a degree of any kind, that's usually all that a uh, place that looks for a degree is looking for. Yeah, that, that's a good point. If you have a degree, it just meant you could deal with going to university and doing the required shit. Nobody cares what it was for. It's just that you managed to do it. So it shows that you've you've met this minimum level of stuff. It also means you probably could get a degree in something in CompSci without having to do as many years as everybody else. But I don't think going back to school is a very useful way to spend your time at this point. Part of it can be find some places that are maybe the type of places you want to work and find out what they're looking for and then work towards that specifically. I sadly can't help you very much here because I've never had a real job. <laughs> You know, when I taught at the college a couple of years after I, I graduated, that was a really weird setup. But outside of that, I've never been directly employed by anyone. I've always just done my own thing since I was 16 and started my first business renting IRC shell accounts to random hobos on the internet. Uh, so I don't know what to tell you. I had the worst web hosting service of my entire life from some punk 13-year-old kid in the UK, as I eventually found out when he stopped paying the bills. <laughs> I basically had that experience trying to do my IRC hosting, and after two or three of them that just went out of business due to terrible mismanagement, I'm like, I can do better. Uh, and so I, I borrowed $1,000 from my parents and bought a server and started doing it, and that paid for college and everything and, and got me the hard-won sysadmin experience of having a hundred people who actually have access, shell access to the box and are trying to do shit on it. Uh, and a, a fraction of them are malicious and you got to keep it all working and keep them from screwing each other and learn why backups are so important. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, if you want to go to school, then a, a trade school thing from a, a diploma from what we would call a college in Canada would be the probably the easier way to do that. And you could probably even get some credits against your existing degree for metallurgy, but probably not worth it. Certificates, maybe one or two if they're cheap and and you can just do it, but you know, they don't really carry much weight because you know most of those certificates have something like a 90% passing rate, which tells you how useful they are. <laughs> you know, if, if a certificate doesn't have a 50% fail rate, on people that try to take it, then it's not hard enough to actually differentiate all the people that take it from the people that don't have it. No interviewer is really going to care about your certificate. The interviewer is not who the certificate is for. The certificate is to get you through the HR filter first that says you have to have, you know, this, this, that, and the other. And, you know, you might have the most amazing resume in the world, but if it never gets to the interviewer because HR is chucking it in the bin because it didn't, you know, tick the right boxes, then you have a problem. Yeah, and that was what I was saying. Like, the uh, luckily for you, I think, if I'm understanding your, your message correctly, you have a degree, just not in computers. That usually is enough to check most of the boxes. Yep. Right, well, we'd better get out of here then. Remember, show at 2.5admins.com if you want to send your questions in for Jim and Alan. You can find me on Twitter at Joe Ressington. I'm at JRSSNet. And I'm at Alan Jude. We'll see you next week.